Welcome to the Looney Hour, the inaugural show here. Uh, before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. Um, so on the show today here, we've got the, uh, the three, three amigos here, uh, myself, We've got Keith Dicker of IceCap Asset Management over in Halifax, been managing portfolios for over 30 years, uh, wealth of information. And we've got Richard Diaz, uh, who is the founder and head of uh, research at, at Acorn. Acorn provides bespoke, bespoke consulting for institutional investors and family offices. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hey, Steve. Hey, Rich. Let's get it going, Hi. guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going, to, we're going to try to keep this light here for the first show. We're looking forward to the feedback here, but uh, wanted to get in first and foremost to sort of you know the hot button topics. We're going to kind of do it do a around the world scope here, and obviously bring it back to how this is going to impact Canadians. That's ultimately our focus here. Um, but the the number one topic that seems to be most discussed is ultimately you know inflation around the world running hot. I mean, you know, our, our, our neighbors to the south there in the U.S., you know, inflation just coming in at a 13-year high. So, you know, CPI inflation ripping in at 5.4% in September, uh, you know, certainly well above, well above the Fed's target. And we know that Canada is probably not far behind. So, uh, I mean, how, how are you guys, Keith? I mean, how are you interpreting uh, the latest reading on CPI? I mean, is, it, is this transitory? Or are, we, uh, are we entering a new paradigm? What, what's, your, what's your take? Yeah, so uh, a few months ago, I was I was clearly in the transitory camp, and uh, the reason for that, you're looking at base year effects. You know, a lot of the the lockdowns, the supply chains, they were going to start to reopen. So, so for example, back in March when the ten year was screaming higher, you know, we were saying then, hey, like this this is a good time to go long, the long bond, and it would you know it would sort of phase its way out, and that's what happened. However, what surprised me now is that. The lockdowns are still continuing. The supply chains, they're not improving. It's its just really difficult to get a global economy back up and running again after shutting it down. And, you know, so like one thing that we always talk about, three of us, you say, you know, it's not for us to say, hey, you know, the policymakers should do this, should do this or should do that. Uh, but it's very clear uh, when you shut down the global economy, you just can't switch it on very quickly again. So I'm now leaning more towards the camp where we got some pretty big problems coming up here. But but just one more thing we need to add to that. So we're screwed then. Well, I don't know about being screwed. I mean, for one thing, for example, markets, you know, we're, we're financial guys, right? So financial markets are never linear. You know, they become exponential in both directions. So we'll, we'll talk about that with oil specifically in a few minutes. But, uh, you know, but trying to measure inflation from what we're seeing at the grocery store or, you know, wherever you want to go to have fun, and then comparing that to what should be happening in, in some of the financial markets, you're going to get that wrong because it's never a mirror image of each other. Because if inflation really was screaming through the system, you know, we should have long rates just going spiking higher. You know, so we, you're able to look at, for example, uh, swap rates, five and two years, you get a good indication of what's happening. And for example, o- over the last couple of weeks, that's starting to scream higher. So that's indication you know, we're going somewhere new. And then the other thing we'll talk about as well is, you know, uh, they might tie in and what's happening with the Fed. A lot, a lot of people take things at face value. And, um, you know, we, we, we tend to be skeptical about a lot of things. Um, 
But for example, there is a, a pretty big fight taking place right now between the Fed and uh, in Treasury, as well as the White House. And all of a sudden, you have some of the Fed members being scrutinized for personal trading. Uh, that that's not a coincidence. Rightly so. There are some things taking place, but that's my quick view on on where we're going. Rich, chime in. Yeah, so I'm I'm of the. I mean, it's nice to be right every once in a while. So sorry to rub it in on the first episode, but I mean, I was I was of the view that it wasn't transitory. Told my clients as much. Um, I mean, obviously, some of the inflation stuff is transitory. Um, You know, used cars, for example, in the U.S. or or you know that kind of stuff. But I think. Well, I mean, Keith touches on a couple of things that I think are really important. Number one is like what is being said and what is being kind of um, the message that's being kind of relayed from the Fed to everyone is one thing. And what is clearly taking part, t- taking place in people's wallets and people's uh, shopping baskets is another. And although you can't really, you know, you can't really, you, you know, people's anecdotal evidence is not, is not to be relied upon. I think that one of the main things that it, the reason that it's not transitory in my view, I think there's three really. Number one is the shelter component. So 42% of uh, the CPI basket in the U.S. is shelter. Um, shelter is basically where people live, housing, uh, the cost of basically running your home. Um, that, that's a function basically of often rental prices. Um, you know, there's a big survey. It's rather complicated. But basically, more or less, if rents go up and the cost of, of price, house prices go up, then shelter component follows suit. And then, and then that's, I think, one of the big problems is, is with this, you know, with this kind of pandemic, you have a situation where that very, very important component just basically did not fall, which is much different than what happened in, let's say, 2001 or 2008. And functionally, that's a result of, I mean, there's many sort of, uh, many reasons, but one of the two clear reasons is that there's just no supply. So if you look at months supply and housing, for example, um, or the vacancy rates of housing or rental units. So you can see, so really there's some upward pressure on one of the key components. And so, yes, you know, there's going to be some stuff that's going to be transitory, like when, when, you know, the supply chain sort of unlock themselves and, as Keith pointed out, it's once you slow an economy down, it takes a long time to re- reheat. But there's going to there's some underlying um, there's some underlying kind of tailwinds there for that. And the other thing I think that's really important is the wage growth. We, I mean, Keith didn't mention that, but I think that wage growth. We'll talk about more of that later in coming podcasts. But I think that there's you know still loads and loads of people who are just not who have left the labor force. I mean, in the U.S., um, there was 95 million people not in the labor force before the pandemic, and now there's about 100 in Canada. Even though Canada's back to its employment pre-pandemic, you still have loads of the the participation rate still um, nowhere near what it was, and so I think that you have a, co- a couple com- a com- combination of a few things that are really just going to keep pushing that pushing that lever. And back to Keith's point about you know the messaging, I think the Fed needs inflation, but it can't admit that there is inflation, um, and so th- that's sort of sort of my view. Um, yeah, I mean, but, like how, how much of that is ultimately? I don't know. Like I, I find that. You know, I'm I'm following this this inflation debate on Twitter, and there's a lot of there's a lot of smart people on both sides. Yeah, and you know, part of this debate is yeah, you know, everyone's trying to argue what causes inflation. I mean, is it is it uh, you know what's happening? Is it you know M two growing more than twenty percent? You know, money supply M two growing more than twenty percent. Um, is it is it shipping containers? Or is it, you know, a combination of and how much of it is psychological? 
because I, I, I don't know for, for me, like I, I, I find it interesting. You start to seeing the average person day to day that doesn't follow finance, doesn't follow macroeconomics, start complaining about higher prices at the butcher shop and higher prices to heat their home. Does it start to become self-fulfilling? I mean, expectations are really, really important. And that's much different than that's what we've seen before. I mean, um, you know, Mario Draghi, the former ECB president, used to talk about that all the time, you know, in inflation expectations and over the euro area crisis. He always mentioned that whenever he had a speech, always talked about inflation expectations. One way to look at it is, I mean, the Michigan, you know, Michigan um, Consumer Confidence Survey, there's an inflation expectations component that refuses to fall. Um, and so and when you get that kind of inflation expectation sort of entrenched in people, I think that's a really, really kind of different element than what we've seen in the past. Keith, I got a question for you. So is this uh, is this a so my, my opinion anyways, I, I would love to hear your, your your pushback on this, perhaps. But is, you know, I'm sitting there watching, you know, whether it's the Fed or more more recently, the Bank of Canada, your Tiff Macklem comes out and says, it's transitory, you know, we're confident, you know, this is going to subside, you know, it's going to be higher inflation till the end of this year. And then, you know, we're going to get back onto track. Like how much of that is just, just grandstanding to try to lower these expectations to try to convince Canadians that he has inflation in the bottle. Yeah. It's uh, so I remember a long time ago when I took uh, some investment courses, you learn about the, you know, the, the, the tools of a central banker, you know, so they can change the money supply, change interest rates. And then they had this other one and it always struck me and it was called moral suasion. So it's, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, it's the BS indicator, you know, they, they can talk and, you know, they try to jawbone the market and by market and you know, people always think equities, but, you know, we look at as, you know, it can be interest rate markets, credit markets, currency, real, you, you name it. So uh, they, they have to say that now. So it doesn't matter if it's the Canadians or the Brits or the Japanese, Americans, Europeans, they all, they're all coordinated. So you remember, you have to don't listen to what they say, just sort of watch what they do. If they start to raise rates, all of a sudden, it is just game over for so many sectors of the economy. So, I mean, it, we're, we're Canadians, you know, my house has doubled in value every month for the last two years, you know, um, my house is a billion dollars, so forth. But the point is, though, the moment rates start to go up, um, it's going to create an awful lot of stresses in the system. So sort of similar to, you know, this, this global supply chain right now, you know, it, it's creating stresses and then they build up and the same thing will happen in the rate market. So I happen to believe that we will not see any central banks raise overnight rates. The only way that they'll do that is if they're entered in, if they're starting to experience their own local, um, you know, uh, currency, uh, you know, stressful moment, so to speak. Uh, but otherwise, they'll they'll do everything they can to keep overnight rates low. Because if they start to raise it, all of a sudden, funding costs at the federal government level, it just explodes. It's not, again, it's not linear. It, it, it's exponential. And then in Canada, it goes to the provincial level. Then at the you've, bank- You've written next- a lot about that, Keith, the, the provincial debt. And, and, and rightfully so, because I remember reading your report probably, I don't know, maybe a year ago. But during the, during the onset of the pandemic, we actually saw that unfold where the, the Bank of Canada had to come out and start buying provincial uh, debt to- yeah. Uh, ultimately provide liquidity to suppress yield. So 
yeah, I, I, is that one of those ones? Like, I mean, what? How do you see this ultimately playing out? Because I just look at it and say, are these guys almost, you know, not like basically backed into this corner where, okay, we've got this inflation. It may not be transitory. It may it may not be transitory. We we're shooting way above our 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 target in terms of you know targeting inflation. Do you raise like I just look at it and say to me it looks like you've got this higher inflation. The economy seems like it maybe it's slowing down. Obviously, we know what's happening in China with Evergrande, it's the second largest, you know, uh, producing country. Do you, do you tighten into a slowing global economy just to combat high inflation, or do you just let inflation basically continue to rip? So I, uh, I'll let Rich chime in in a second here, but uh, you know we're, we're a big picture shop. That's what we do. You look for the big movements that are taking place. And uh, I believe we are at the end of, of this long, you know, 80 year cycle where it's the end of monetary and fiscal policy that everyone adopted after World War II. So Canadian economic policy, it's gone, it's dead. It's dead now for 12, 15 years. You will see every single central bank now, including the Bank of Canada, they are very active with promoting this, is going towards central bank digital currencies. So, so you have that happening. You're also hearing MMT being floated around. Um, you know, and then they, so central bankers, like they're really struggling, guys. They, they have these, you know, they got inflation going around everywhere. You know, they're trying to do QE, they try to fund the deficit you know, for the, at, at the federal level here in Canada and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, they are preparing for a, a big shift taking place. Crypto is out there. That's pushing them as well. Financial markets are going to try to push them. But I, I think we have some big events coming up. So now I think the whole discussion about, you know, inflation, is it too high, too low? Will they change rates to combat it? I, I sort of think that's looking at, you know, the trees through the whole forest here. But what do you think, Rich? Um, so, I, I mean, I, I'm a top-down guy, too, and why this is why I think you and I get along, Keith, and I think we'll have wonderful conversations going forward. Um, for me, it's just a slightly different... I mean, I agree with you on the digital currency and M&T thing, so we'll, I'll just set that aside for a second. But the question of whether or not they're backed into a corner, I don't necessarily think that that's true. So I agree with Keith in the sense that, um, you know, they're not going to raise the short end, right? Short trend, right? So the, um, and maybe it's more interesting if we disagree, and we'll have opportunities to do that some other time. But I totally agree with you on that. I think the key thing is, you know, the Bank of Canada, just as an example, they have a, something called the preferred measure of, of core inflation. And this is what makes this um, Tiff, uh, you know, the, the Tiff's comments so rich, right? So delicious. He says, you know, there, you know inflation is not transitory, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you have to like sort of jawbone that. And, you, and I wouldn't, I don't blame him in a sense. Because so this measure basically is if you go on the Bank of Canada website and you you look this up, it actually explicitly says the reason the Bank of Canada likes this measure is because it strips out all of the transitory or <laughs> shock related inflation stuff. Right. So like literally they did this years ago. This is this series has been going on. And the series goes back for 20 years. So they invented this thing. It's a really smart a bunch of PhDs in economics, smarter than I am. Figure this out. They plot it, and it's already well above their target and rising. Um, and so, like shit, we better change the basket again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's that definitely that. But the the idea that they're back into a corner, I don't necessarily think so because I think that they need inflation for all of this debt and deficits to get paid down. And I think we're in a situation. I mean, you know, Steve, you and I have talked about this before, but I think it's a situation where the 1940s, 
to 1960s, where you basically had inflation running well above interest rates. And I mean, the, rea- the, the, the dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back in real terms. That's that's what they're, this is why I don't necessarily think they're going to get back yes. into a corner. So you have a situation of basically deep, real negative interest rates for a prolonged period of time to slowly alleviate global debt to GDP, which yeah. sits at roughly 365%. Now, Keith, I've seen your comments on Twitter. I don't think you're as... Uh, a huge proponent of, of yield curve control and how successful they might be. I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on, on how, how you see that playing out over the next, let's call it the next five, 10 years, as you rightfully said, the end of this Keynesian economics, which I think Ray Dalio also says, you know, suggests is the end of this long-term debt super cycle. Um, you know, how, how do we get out of this? Well, so, so first of all, there, inflation comes from three ways. You know, you have excess, you know, demand is greater than supply. That's, that's what everybody wants. It means wages are going up. And then you can have inflation created because of a currency uh, devaluation. So, for example, if your currency declines, everything is more expensive and, and so forth. That, that, that's not desirable as well. And then the other one, which is happening today, is that you have less supply. So supply is less than demand because, again, the global supply chain is, is shut down. So I, I think it's not... When we say like, hey, central banks, they want inflation, they do, but they want inflation with a healthy, normal economy with demand greater than supply. They do not want inflation because of a currency is out of whack. And I think that's where the next crisis will start and end. And they do not want inflation that's being driven by supply chain shutdowns. Um, so that's, that's just my, my quick thought on, you know, why so we do not have a good inflation story right now today for central banks. They are not happy about this. So that's why they're trying to say, Hey, it doesn't exist. You know, it's gone. Right. Something like that. So the four um, stages. <laughs> yeah. Speaking First, of it doesn't exist. First, it doesn't exist. Then it's a little stage two is it's a little bit less than you think it is. Stage three is that it's transitory. And then stage four, which is going to come up, which is, it's actually really good for everybody. Don't worry about it. Yeah, so it's a good question. You know, so we'll go back to the yield curve control question. But I mean, just say we're we're the central banks, three of us. What can we do to reduce inflation right now? I mean, Joe Biden. I mean, my, called, my, Joe so, Biden called the Port Authority the other day and told them to open up ports, and <laughs> they're looking at said, "We well, oh, raise rates. You could raise rates and tank the economy and, and put and push the economy into recession." That's that's one way to reduce. That's inflation. what people seem to be advocating for in the uh, in the Twitter sphere. There, that oh well, yes, of yeah. course the Fed can do something about inflation. They should be hiking <clears throat> rates, and so I said, yeah. So you're basically saying is that they should intentionally push the economy back into recession to alleviate these inflation that will kill demand on the uh, shipping side. That will fix some of that. Some of those bottlenecks, but then, then, but then your debt, your debt to GDP, GDP picture gets even worse. It, it doesn't. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Keith. Well, like another interest. So again, like one thing I love about markets, you can dig deep and sideways and find things that most people don't see. So one movement that's happening today that people haven't, I haven't seen many people talking about it, is the movement in uh, you call it the euro dollar market or the, you know, it's basically the cost of overnight. Uh, financing and it's with this representative overnight rates and, and over the last three five days now uh, that market is indicating rates are going higher and it's it's moved it's moved aggressively whereas at the same time you have no 
nothing from the Fed is indicating they're going to raise rates, none of that. Uh, so it's happening in the U.S., it's happening in the European market as well. So something is, you know, a foot here underneath the market. So everyone, you know, we all get excited with equity markets and here in Canada is oil markets. People look at that. And I, I do want to come back to oil before we finish today. Uh, but again, there's a lot of things happening right now. And one of the main, you know, the main drivers is always the Fed. The in, And with the Treasury right now, they with Yellen, they absolutely want to run this enormous budget. That's what they want to do. Um, and they're getting pushback because, hey, the economy is well, the stock market is up, the Fed is pushed back against as well. So how do you get acceptance for a big budget to come through, more stimulus? Because as you said, you know, we, we need some kind of a correction here in the market. And if the Fed is not willing to help or assist with that, then, hey, we'll remove you and get someone else to do your job. So you know, I suspect you're going to see a, a bunch of doves start taking over the Fed. And uh, we're going to see enormous deficits going forward, some form of MMT going forward. But they need to set the stage first to allow that to happen. Because we have a big election coming up in the U.S. next year with midterms. And, um, you know, it's going to be a bit law. It's going to be unbelievable what's going on with that, that election, how it can flip the House potentially as well as Senate. So there's going to be some pretty big moves coming up here. It's not, again, it's not as simple as, as people think it is all the time. But Keith, you've laid out to me, like, you know, we haven't really talked about our views on asset allocation, but one of the reasons I'm, I remain sort of bullish, although that has changed a little bit, I've become a little bit, you know, thinking cash is probably where you want to be saved if you're trying to avoid a correction. But, you know, MMT is to me the biggest bull, you know, it's like, that's a hugely bullish thing, right? I mean, what you're doing is basically devaluing, you continue to devalue currencies, um, you know, MMT, mon- modern monetary theory for people who may or may not have heard that before is basically, it's basically what the Bank of Canada has done for the last, you know, 24 months, which is just uh, print money to purchase deficits and, and debt and, and in order to keep interest rates down with the, you know, the hook at the end of that um, and the stick being in the future, they're going to raise taxes. Now, we all know that's politically basically unpalatable at this situation in this current environment. But MMT to me seems like an extremely really bullish thing for, for risk assets because it's not that the risk assets are, are better or or they're probably going to be worse, right? It's just that they're in they're priced in real terms, right? So it, you have a situation where you're just you're it's not that you know it's not that your your house is worth more, it's that actually just your dollars are worth less and less. And so and and you know, you don't have, and so to me that's like a really, really kind of you know, people that I think there's so many bears out there who are just like constantly trying to badger you, badger me rather, and push back on like, well, why are you so bullish? It's not, I'm not bullish. I think it's, it's the whole system is, is, <laughs> is seizing and it's, and it's garbage. But at the end of the day, I want a real claim on the future cash flows, whatever they might be, rather than let's say bonds, which is, you know, I think they're just totally bogus. I think that. that I think that's a good I think that's a good way to 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 segue though, uh, in terms of. Okay, MMT in Canada, you know, we've talked about inflation where, you know, you're talking about a currency devaluation as well. This sort of stealth devaluation where you got higher inflation, you've got rapidly rising home prices, you know, particularly here in Canada. Um, You know, ironically enough, Tiff Macklin came out in his his presser last week saying, oh, you know, the house price, house, housing market is slowing down. So that's signs that it's transitory. And I can tell you from feet on the ground perspective, it is absolutely ripping piping hot right now. Uh, House prices are still moving up and to the right, uh, even though sales have, yes, sales have slowed off of all time record highs. 
Um, but they are, you know, so, you know, so, so we've got the situation where you got, you know, piping inflation, <clears throat> real negative interest rates, um, looks like the, you know, uh, this cost of living crisis that you're suggesting, okay, MMT is talking about higher taxes down the road. I mean, let's talk about oil now, uh, you know, trading above 80 bucks barrel, uh, you know, I mean, how much does this chip away into the cost of living? I mean, I don't know, Rich Keith, in terms of the cost of living, but also the cost just to heat your 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 home this this winter, which is is going to be going up exponentially. I mean, I, I can't speak really to the cost of heating a home. I don't live in a giant mansion like um, like Keith does and um, with a billion dollar house. So, you know, my, my costs are actually fixed. So, you know, my uh, and I rent. Um, I'm a I'm a renter right now. Um, I do, you know, my, one of my clients is in England, uh, London specifically. And, you know, you know, he's a relatively, he's a very, very wealthy man. And even he was squawking and how can you blame him? His natural, so 40 or 60% of all energy in UK is natural gas and his natural gas prices have gone up five X that's five times. So, I mean, I don't care how much money you make or have or whatever. I mean, that is an incredible, incredible amount. Um, and, you know, that's, it's, what's fascinating is that loads and loads of, um, um, you know, loads in, of, of natural gas providers have actually gone bankrupt, which I find also kind of fascinating. And the government there has had to step in. As far as its effect on cost of living, I mean, that's one of the kind of the bearish arguments, right? Eventually, you know, you, you know the use of energy and, and oil is inelastic. You need, you need to heat your house. You need to drive your car. Um, yeah, um, I, I can't really speak to the housing crisis thing, so I'll, maybe I'll just step aside and like keep take that one. But I think it is poking. Uh, I think what's really delicious in all this um, is you know long, fossil fuels are dead. Long live fossil fuels. I mean, we're we're all sort of face facing the reality of how important fossil fuels are to everyone's livelihood, well being. Um, and I think that that's something we've we've sort of been denying that and ignoring the cost of this green transition. And for me, it's been really kind of fun, really, <laughs> in, in a sort of um, in a, in a little bit of Shannon Freud watching this happen. I think what you know, you know we're, we're market we're market guys. That's that's what we are first and foremost, and, and always when we're speaking all the time. Uh, and, and I think one thing that's that's really great about this current movement here in, in oil. So right now, uh, you know, if we shoot through, we're talking about WTI for, for oil, West Texas, you know, if we shoot through 82, 83 range, like this can just scream higher. Like it could just go vertical, you know, to the moon, so forth. Uh, however, one thing that's really great ab about these markets, nothing is linear. And, and that's my biggest observation all the time with markets. People think whatever happened last year will continue this year and, and so forth and whatever. And, and people have the shortest memories when it comes to investment markets. So for example, we'll come back to, oh, I'll make a very good point with it. But we've, over the last 20 years now, we've had three separate stock market events where markets have declined from say 40 to 50% in each one. So you got the tech bubble, the housing bubble, then the COVID pandemic. Um, and the recovery time in each one, you know, it, it's been shorter and shorter, but it, it takes a long time to, to get back from where you started when, when you get these events happening. But right now today with markets, it's risk on, especially in Canada, there, there's no risk anywhere elsewhere. But let me share with you what could cause a crisis or a stressful moment here in Canada. And, and again, we're, we're always very consistent with this. It won't be a Canadian made uh, event. So we, I know we're going to talk uh, in another show about the BIS uh, paper that, that came out, but 
if oil prices continue to scream higher, Canadians say, yeah, dollar's going higher, my house is going higher, foreigners are buying this, this and that, because Canada's awesome. When oil and energy prices scream higher, it just sucks the life and soul out of other countries. So then you say, okay, which other countries are these? It's not the Americans. You know, they have a lot of energy production inside. Parts of Europe have their own. It's not going to hurt the Russians. They're pretty good with it. Instead, you look at the emerging market space. And over, over the last, you know, 12 years I'm talking about, and especially over the last two years now or was since the pandemic started, you know, central banks, they've shut down price discovery in the bond market as well with credit spreads. They're gushing liquidity everywhere, you think. The one market that's wide open that has exposure to any kind of stress or risk will come out, it is the emerging market space. So for, I, know, I know, Steve, we're looking at the Turkish lira there just a couple of days ago. Uh, again, this morning, it's at another all-time low, if you want to look at it, if you invert it properly. Uh, Turkey is in trouble. They have to uh, basically import all of their energy prices. So every time oil is going higher, the Turks are saying, oh, man, this is crazy. This is your, your, your friend in London, you know, he's hurting with nat gas going higher. The Turks are hurting with oil going higher. But, what's, but what makes Turkey even more vulnerable to everything is that they have no foreign currency reserves left. The central bank would say they have a gross level of about 80 billion. Uh, most of that they've actually taken from the commercial banks. So if you have a U.S. dollar deposit at a Turkish bank, you think it's safe, no way. The Turkish Central Bank, they've taken it, repossessed it. They're using it to sell dollars and buy a lira on, on the open market. So, I mean, they're, they're down to about maybe $20 billion right now. And they have about uh, their trade deficit. It's uh, about 60% of it is related to energy. So, again, they're in real trouble here. So, it, the longer you have oil doing this, the, the tighter it just grinds everyone. One of the best trades I've ever been involved with, and I know I've been wrong, but this is really, people like money, right? But one of the best trades I've ever been involved with was when uh, when oil spiked up to about 146, 147. I think it was, I think it was 08 or 07. I forget that the year it was uh, exactly. It was going straight up. And everyone then was saying, hey, it's going to 200. No, it's going to 250 and, and whatever. Uh, a lot of the models we had at the time say, hey, this has gone vertical. Sentiment is sky high. This is going to flip over here. And I think we are going to enter that. It's my hope that energy does scream higher, specifically oil, because then we're set up then for one of the biggest trades we've seen in our lifetime is the short oil. I, I don't think it's right now because when we have some support levels, it, it, it might hold here. But if it does start to scream higher, everyone's going to start tumbling into that trade and boy, you get on the other side of it. Keith, I just want to circle back on that because I know there's going to be some listeners here, you know, some, some good Canadians listening here and they're going to say, well, Keith, the hell do I care about Turkey? What what are you talking about? Higher, higher oil prices impacting Turkey. Do you want to explain that, that correlation? Cause we, we were, you know, getting back to, okay, you know, a crisis in Canada, it won't be, it won't be homegrown. It won't be Tiff Macklin gets a spine and decides to normalize interest rates. It'll be, you know, overseas. And, and your view is in Turkey. Do you want to explain that correlation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great point. Um, so, if Turkey runs into problems, they have to say who has direct exposure to Turkey, and you're looking at Spanish banks. So not big, but it and then which spills over to the French and, and the German banks and. They don't even get into the Italian banks. So they have their, they live in their own fantasy. By the way, I like to call uh, Europe the uh, the economic fantasy land called Europe because there's 
you know, that's another conversation. But the, the challenge here with someone like Turkey, if, if they do run into uh, a crisis event, which they, they already are, they, I mean, Erdogan continues to fire and reshuffle the deck at the central bank every month, it seems like, uh, you have the opportunity for contagion. And people will say, well, there's no direct link. You do not need a direct link. You can have an indirect link. And people have made a lot of money over the last 18, 20 months now. You just need any excuse to start taking risk off the table. It comes out of Turkey first, all of a sudden, other emerging markets, Brazil, Mexico, you know, South Africa, you name it. it. It can spill over very quickly, Steve. And then the way that affects Canada, and this comes back to yield curve control, um, whereas you will not have overnight rates going higher, you can have credit spreads start to widen dramatically, which is mortgage rates here in Canada. And on top of that, just long-term nominal rates can start screaming higher. So it, it can it can happen very quickly. And it comes down to the banking level as well. And again, that's something that comes out of, you know, people say, oh, that's left field. You know, that's not going to happen. That's where the risk is. You know, that's where like, something is set up here to happen. Because again, nothing is linear in the investment world. Everything goes exponential, back and forth, back and forth, or up and down. And I, I just think we're set up here for how, some how much. How moments. much weight are you guys putting on like uh, China Evergrande? Because there's what there's five, five developers now, five large developers that have now missed a payment or have delayed uh, a coupon I mean, payment. There's never one, never, never just one cockroach. So when I heard about the Evergrande thing, you know, you, you, you just it's just, I mean it's the same with all these sort of uh, crises. I'm sure that Canadians will eventually reckon with their own real estate crisis one day. But I think that the China thing, I think, is a different story. I think um, China's got it. China, I mean, next year is, I think, the 20th um, you know, uh, party Congress. Uh, Xi Jinping is in the middle of setting up for a third term, which is not unprecedented in China, China but is very, very rare and was, um, I think, made was illegal for a long time. And I think China is, is a different animal just because of how powerful that totalitarian regime is. And I don't think that necessarily want to get sunk by a couple of, of, of real estate companies. The other thing I think is also really important to note is that China, although they ran huge budget deficits, they have really, really high real interest rates, unlike you know most of the Western world. Um, and they have a lot of room on the monetary policy front. Um, unlike Canada, which bought basically all of you know, the government bond issuance over the last two years or the US, which bought about 50 or Europe that bought 80 odd percent of it. Um, China's actually um, cut down their central bank assets as a percent of GDP. I think it's at a 20 year low. Um, their central bank assets have basically been flat um, for a long time. And so they have a lot more room. Now, I don't know, Keith probably can speak better to how the market would react if this continued. But as far as specifically, would China, you know, like drive into the ditch because, you know, you know, half a dozen other real estate companies, I, I'm, I'm of the view that they can definitely weather that storm. They have a positive current account balance, huge reserves. Their currency is at a, at a high. They can tank that. Um, I just think it's a different animal. But one more thing on the oil thing and related to Keith's point about the contagion thing is, um, and, and your point, um, Steve, about raising short-term interest rates. I mean, loads of emerging markets have already started to raise interest rates um, and a function because they can't, they don't have the luxury that a lot of Western countries, the Euro, um, all these hard currencies. I mean, we, we get on, you know, Canada and the US and Euro, um, they're hard currencies and they live on a hope and a prayer. But I mean, Brazil has raised interest rates 600 basis points. 
Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of other of these countries. And so when you think about oil going up, you think of, you know, the, the pressures that somebody like, whether it's Brazil or another emerging market, um, right. there's a lot of pressure. You, you used to live in, in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, the Bank of England is, is coming out and saying that they yeah. might hike interest rates, I think, before the end of this year is up. At least that's what they're saying. Is that just was that just a bunch of you know hot verbiage that they're trying to sort of quell markets, or, or what's your take? No, the UK is in a really really tough position. I mean, UK has a huge current account um, deficit. Um, you know, they're dealing with this. They, they don't. They're they're they've gone all in on the green stuff, so they're importing massive massive amounts of, of energy, um, and. And I think they're in a really, really difficult position. Although you, but I think also, and then, and then you have a situation where, you know, you, you, you the, the market, like you aren't having anywhere near the same kind of um, sort of portfolio inflows that you have. So the other side of your current account is what's known as a capital account. And so for years they were, they, they generate a lot of revenue and, and income from Europe and other parts of the world. And that's sort of gone down quite a bit. Um, and so Europe, I and mean, so UK, I mean, is going to have to deal with that. And I think it, you can see why its currencies really hasn't done as well as it, it necessarily should. Or, and it's also it's also got a really kind of a, just an absolute shit um, equity market. It's just not positioned the way. I mean, if you look at it, it has massively underweight tech, um, and you know its banks are really exposed to a lot of the European uh, banks. And so you're in a situation. And so so it's just and its healthcare has underperformed. I mean, it's just it's just not a really great place to invest. Um, other than you know people you know some you know somebody from Kuwait trying to hide their money in London or something like that, it's it's been a really been an absolute nightmare. I think UK has underperformed for the last twenty odd years relative to the global econ- uh, global equity market. So, so, so I, Rich, I just see more of that. <laughs> so Rich, with your uh, bit of a bearish slash negative observation on on Britain, uh, it's making you sound a, a little English yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. I mean, I, I love England. It's a great place for beers. I mean, at least you can drink uh, beers outside like a civilized person. I just, I think you're right, Steve. I think that, I think, I think a lot of it's job voting, but um, I don't, I don't know how you can, can as a central bank raise interest rates into a situation where you're having energy prices. I think that that's just, it, it's, it, people just won't stand for it, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know how you could, Sort of do yeah, you're, like you're going to raise. Luxury. You're going to raise our interest payments, our debt servicing costs. Right. While, yeah, I don't know. While the cost of energy to heat your homes is going up, like you said, five x. Yeah, it's not just that, right? It's like I mean, shrinkflation. I mean, we're sort of going around. We're coming back to where we started, but I think it's it's like you know, I mean, shrinkflation is a thing. If you go on, there's like a subreddit on uh, and reddit called shrinkflation which is like amazing where people just take photos of products they used to buy and and, and you can say well rich it's anecdotal and you shouldn't pay it i think that's exactly what the fact number one the fact that people are thinking and talking about it affects people's expectations something you said earlier steve but also you can't deny it i mean people you know it's instead of getting 30 rolls of toilet paper you get 28 um you know it's like that's you know that's that's like you know it's we're down we're down amount. we're down to single ply now yeah <laughs> Except for but, Keith, um, he's got triple ply still um, yep. in his in his mansion. <laughs> but, Keith, yeah, do you have any um, uh, any any final thoughts to uh, to wrap up the inaugural show here? Me? Yeah, you. Oh, <laughs> you're still thinking about that triple ply? 
Yeah, no, I was just thinking about the whole, uh, I, you know, I think, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun, uh, really great conversations going forward. And, you know, we really welcome people you know, tuning in and, and watching and listening. Uh, I know we had a bunch of questions come through over Twitter. And uh, I think we touched on some of them sort of off and on. And I saw one one that came in a while ago is it's it's kind of interesting. It says, how does Steve Sareski always have three-day shadow? Never four day, never two day. It's always three. How does he do it all the time? That's a good question. There's 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 no science to it. I just I only have one setting on my razor. It's, <laughs> it's, it's three three day shadow. But uh, speaking of which, we'll we'll end it on a, on a final question. We actually also got another question from uh, Connor Damone, that's asking, "What's your favorite Donaire shop in Halifax?" I know Rich loves Donaire's. So no, I absolutely hate Donaire, <laughs> so I will abstain. But Keith, you've lived here a long, long time. I'm sure you know a good one. I mean, a shawarma is beautiful. Uh, uh, Middle Eastern food is fantastic. And to go and adulterate it with uh, sweet, whatever that is, is, I don't know. I can't do it. For I'd, rather buy ESG fund, I'd rather buy ESG funds than eat a donor. Let's, let's just say that. <laughs> wow, that's, that's, a bold, that's a bold statement to end it. I love it. Um, just, to, just to wrap this up, final comments here uh, for those uh, who aren't aware. So Keith and I actually got acquainted, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, Keith, I actually discovered Keith initially. Someone sent me his ice cap reports, which I, Keith, I don't know, you think you put them out like once every couple months, but you just you just posted a new one. So if anyone's uh, interested in checking that out, um, and I think Rich is helping with some of the data analysis and some of those, but uh, really good wealth of information. Um, Keith was it's icecapassetmanagement.com, I think, and it's pretty pretty easy to find there. So, mm-hmm. all right, gents, we'll uh, let's let's wrap it up. We'll wrap it up here for the uh, for the first ever show. Uh, listeners, here we're looking for for feedback. Here we're trying to keep this lighthearted, uh, you know, a little bit loose on structure here, but uh, you know. Bear with us. Give us the benefit of the doubt, and uh, we'll continue to pump these out on a weekly basis. So, thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. Cheers, guys. Cheers.